Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. It's just me on the show today, along with my ancient reptilian brain, limbic system, a horrific necktie, and three insightful guests. Here to join me in dancing through the dark deluge of ideology that is Disco Elysium are Aaron Ross Powell. Hello. Features editor at Reason, Peter Suderman. Hello. And host of the Epoch Philosophy YouTube channel, Ian Bennett. Hello. I am so excited to have this conversation about this game because I've thought about it a lot and I believe Disco Elysium might be my favorite artistic work of all time in any genre or any medium. And Ian, in your in the video that you put together, which we'll put a link to in the show notes on the philosophy of Disco Elysium, you don't you're not quite as hyperbolic as I am, but you do, I think at the beginning of that video, say this game does a better job of proficiently conveying a multitude of things than almost any other work of fiction and artistically applied philosophy. What is it about it that makes it so successful in that regard? I mean, it's like a really, really broad game, you know? I I suppose one of the first things I noticed was uh, when the game first came out, there's like game reviews, right? I'm a gamer. I play games and, you know, when new games come out, especially weird, interesting ones like Disco Elysium, I, I had no idea what it was. Um, everyone was talking about the the political commentary. Everyone was talking about sort of the the sociological or, or philosophical commentary um, behind it and stuff. And uh, I was like, oh, this is interesting. OK, well, I'll give it a try. But when I played it, it's not. It's it it's not so it's not as apparent as what a lot of reviewers or anyone would be saying. It's actually kind of the facade in a way. It's not necessarily a facade, but sort of a facade is almost like a comedy. Like it's funny, it's hilarious. And so you're like, wait, for for a second, you're like, if someone wasn't really totally paying attention, there would be a lot that they would be glossing over. And that really shocked me is that they were so good at conveying these certain ideas over this sort of comedic facade that like everyone who talked about the game didn't talk about the comedy. They talked about the actual like commentary behind it. And I just think that subtext, like it, it is subtext, right? The, the philosophical commentary, but it's so good. It almost isn't, if that makes sense. And I was just kind of just like baffled by that. I was like, holy crap. Like this is, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. It's great. So I think that was probably one of the biggest things i would say yeah one of the things that struck me was that the the so as a role-playing game you mentioned in your video that the game is ostensibly all about choice and choices we can make um and how instead of you know grand narrative choices like there are big moments that happen in the game where you're you're making choices to do an action that could have you know dire consequences but the the entire game there, there are almost no mechanics other than, you know, stat, you know, sort of placement and picking up items and uh, choosing dialogue options. Uh, it is, like a lot of people have said, interactive literature and sort of a, a visual novel in that sense rather than a traditional role-playing game. Um, and the, the developers specifically talked about how they focused on what they called micro-reactivity, which are these small acts and decisions that the player, you know, has to work through, such as a, a, a slightful comment or trying to insinuate certain things to certain characters that you're trying to get information out of, and how all of those build upon one another 
in in a much more cohesive way than in a lot of role playing games where you're making a lot of dialogue choices and and sort of building up a character in your mind but the decisions that actually affect gameplay and what happens in the story usually come down to one or two choices that are are just sets of branching paths whereas this is is much much more of a dialogue tree scenario and and different choices are building upon one another in ways that you really do not always see the connections between which i think is interesting when you're specifically talking about ideology as you had brought up which is a a core component of the game not just thematically but mechanically when you talk about things like the the thought cabinet um which i think uh, is is a really really good example of like ludonarrative harmony as opposed to dissonance like you have a mechanic in the game how it's played the sort of acquiring bits of ideology and thought processes and new ideas you don't just stumble upon them in locations they are learned gradually from other characters based on interactions that you have and choices that you make such that you cannot receive them all in a single playthrough. It is not a completionist's game in that way. For the folks who don't play or read uh, super nerdy video game commentary, we should probably explain the concept of of ludonarrative dissonance, which is basically that uh, a lot of video games rely on in-game game mechanics that seem to conflict with the story and the classic example here is the uh, the uncharted games in which you play like a really nice like kind of heroic indiana modern indiana jones-esque guy named nathan drake and you're supposed to like him and he's he's just like an essential like uh, a sort of pulp hero who you are who is very likable and does the right thing and yet the gameplay is all about you just shooting people in the face and you just shoot people in the face constantly. You murder dozens and dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of people over the course of these games. And yet, you know, like then you get to the cutscenes and the story is there and he's like, you know, he's just like a nice heroic, like essentially good, like, like he could be at the center of a Marvel movie starring a guy named Chris and you would like him and it'd be funny. And then you're just shooting people in the face because because it's a video game with a lot of action that, like in games, this is a thing that games do. But if you think about it, there is a conflict there. And what this game does is it tries to integrate the gameplay mechanisms such that they are with the actual story. Um, and so, I mean, part of the interesting thing, though, about this game is that it is, it's not in a lot of ways a traditional game because the mechanisms are not in a lot of ways, all that game-like, and they're not really all that... I mean, and the, the more game-like they are, the less essential I think they are to the story. This is um, Ian, Ian's uh, uh, YouTube video called this um, uh, Interactive Literature, which is, which is, I think, a better way to think about what this, this game is, right? It is, it's just a very, very complex branching story. It borrows from some sort of RPG role-playing game mechanics, um, in particular, uh, the conversations with uh, non-player characters. And so this is something that we've seen in games for decades now, in video games for decades now. Uh, you see it in um, also in tabletop games like Dungeons & Dragons, but it's really common in, in very popular video games like the Bethesda uh, role-playing games, um, the uh, Fallout, um, Elder Scrolls, uh, also things you know um, like Mass Effect, right? You, just const- you see this a lot. And so you have these non-player characters, these... Uh, players that are controlled by 
by the game um, mechanism. And you typically in these games, you go up and you ask them questions and they kind of serve as information kiosks. And they might tell you a little bit about themselves or a little bit about the world, but mostly what they're there to do is provide you with like pretty low-level exposition that's like, you gotta go fetch three magic hats from three different caves. And then you go fetch the magic hats from the caves, and you return to the, the NPC, and they're like, great. Now you gotta go to three different mountaintops and get three magic socks. Right, and it's just sort of mechanical telling you what to do. But here, the the RP, like, the this game treats all of these NPCs as kiosks, but they're they're like ideological kiosks, right? Like each one of them is is like a portal to uh, some sort of political interpersonal worldview that you can just interrogate in great, great depth. And so it is this it's it's that the game is built around just going around and talking to to in-game characters. Uh, who all of whom have a story to tell you about what they're doing in this world and who they are and why they're standing where they're standing or what they're thinking, but also about how they relate to the game's politics and how they relate to the game's various complicated ideological and political uh, 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 worldviews. Um, and so this game, uh, you know, the, the question we started here with was, how does this game manage to do so much? And I think part of it, is just that it's structured around really deep, quite complex, fairly weird conversations with constructs that you're supposed to think of as characters, but in fact are these sort of idiosyncratic, kind of sly, kind of wry, ideological uh, kiosks, right? Like, 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 and and so it uses the the kiosk mechanism from other video games as a way to like to give you an extremely deep um and yet also as you said often quite funny and uh it, and like personal and idiosyncratic way in way to explore a particular worldview i think the one thing that makes this p- particularly interesting is that it is such a political game but the politics of it and it's I mean, and it may be the most deeply political and informed about politics and political ideology game I've certainly ever played. Um, but it's not ultimately like about politics or the role that politics plays in this is not about the what should what institution should we have, what steps should we take, what freedoms or not we should we have. But this is more a game about ideology as identity formation. And the way that that ideology is about deciding kind of who we want to be in a given moment, and then the disconnect between identity and the world that we find ourselves in, and the the psychological trauma that that inflicts. And I think that's where going back to the the ludonarrative harmony, like the absolute brilliance of the thought cabinet, is it takes a mechanic that is present in a lot of games, which is like. Every time you go up in level, you get some points that you can assign to a talent, and those talents give you special little abilities or bonuses, but you can only take so many of them. But in this one, what it says is, no, these are, you you learn, you come across the things, the talents are not things you just get when you go up in level. They're things that you come across in the world. Someone mentioned something, and it's an idea that like hadn't occurred to you and is potentially interesting, and now you're going to put it into your head. You're going to decide to put it into your head and mull it. And then after a certain period of time, it becomes part of who you are. 
except you can then go and say, I want to remove this from my identity. And so it's not about whether these ideas are true or effective. It's about who is the person I want to build and what beliefs do I need to go out in the world and find to assemble in that. And then you have all of these characters who are then just trapped in in these beliefs, these, as Peter mentioned, like these incredibly deep and weird belief systems, but they're not so much about affecting change in the world as they are about just who do I want to present myself as. They're often about tribal and communal loyalties. Yes. Um, but they're also, I mean, there's a realism. Like I will say the moment this game, when I was like, oh my God, this game gets me is when you are stuck in the dingy apartment and the weird guy is talking to you about monetary policy. And I was like, whoever wrote this has been to libertarian DC happy hours. Well, but what's part of what's interesting about the, again, the way the, that they employ this mechanic is that it doesn't in some sense allow you to play the game better, right? And so traditionally in a role-playing game, you level up and you can put points into a skill or something like that, right? And there's different ways that this these constructs work. But like, let's call it put points into a skill. So you can choose that you're going to get better at archery or even that you, there are sometimes conversation-based skills, right? You can unlock additional conversation uh, options, become better at convincing people to let you, which you usually is just like, well, I can convince this person to let me go through this gate without a fight, right? That's like the the, the most common way of using a, a conversation modifier in a role-playing game. And here it's like, well, if, if you pick the right one, you can get a little bit more money. And that is, I guess, a little bit helpful. But mostly it's just sort of that it changes the conversations. It's not that you are suddenly better equipped to do the things that the game requires you to do, in some sense, in part because the game doesn't even require you to do all that much, in, or at least not in the way of a traditional video game. It's just that as you are doing the things that you can do in the course of the game, you will do them differently, and the conversations will unfold uh, in different ways. And sometimes even your own reflections to yourself will, un will then unfold in different ways. You will have different thoughts about the conversation or about an object that you find about the space that you have encountered and so it's not that you are that you are using these uh, that you are using you know the thought cabinet that you're using uh, these things in the traditional way which is i want to build a character that can kill all the monsters there's no monsters to kill there's just weird interactions to have with other with, with game based characters who are going to ask you questions and may or maybe or maybe not try to explain themselves to you. Um, possibly they'll do a good job or possibly they will also be kind of deluded about who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's like uh, I, 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 one of the things that I found was like absurdism itself, like seems to be kind of built into the very fiber of the game, like not necessarily or like not only narratively and in, in a lot of senses with how, you know, the story unfolds and you're grappling with ideology, but just like that, what you were explaining, the way that the game functions itself, like there is no right or wrong way to do it. It's by definition, the game sort of chaotic and how everything unfolds. There is no right or wrong way. It's like you are in this weirdly infinite world with 
infinite choice and there's just this overwhelming sense of absurdism everywhere. And I, I actually think the actual aesthetic of absurd, uh, absurdism, the weirdness of the game, right? They, they definitely highlight it there, but that's definitely like one of the, one of the biggest markers of Disco Elysium is that absurdism in my mind. I mean, it, it has, it has quests and task lists, which drove me mad because there's no way to figure out how to do them. It's just like, you're supposed to go find your gun. And you're like, how would I do that? And it tells you, it just says this could take a while. <laughs> like it, it acknowledges that it hasn't given you any information. But it's not like there's a location marker where you go and you defeat like a couple of small enemies. Then you defeat a big one. And like there's a, you know, the, you got to find a hidden door and like pick up a, you know, a plus 10 sword or something. It's none of that. It's like, go find your gun. I don't know. Talk to some people. Maybe somebody will just. As you're doing whatever it is you're gonna do, you should ask around about it. I guess it's like a really, uh, like a really well, like it's like a really well organized detective thought, like like list. You know, they're just writing everything down, even to the mental, you know, the the mental thing. That's all it does, right? It's not really like a, a quest log, even though it is. The only reason it says quest log is that's just the, our language around uh, sort of mechanics like that in a game, right? Yeah, it, I mean it. It certainly works for me. I mean, I've been playing Elden Ring a lot lately, which has been getting a lot of press lately compared to the sort of UI and, and HUD in that game, which is extremely sparse, just does you no favors. And this is, is sort of in that that vein. Um, and yet in Elden Ring, you can build a character that is more effective or at least more effective at important types of tasks, right? It's It hasn't completely abandoned the idea of tactical superiority and of of in-game strategy. And Disco Elysium effectively says there's there's no there's many different ways to play, but there is no better way to play. You and in fact it, it almost it, like this game almost doesn't really even expect you to keep playing. It just sort of allows you to if you would like to, whereas every other modern video game, even quite artsy fartsy indie games, they're designed around the expectation, like around getting you to engage with things. And this is, I, I think, a very engaging game just because it's inherently interesting, but it doesn't try to induce you to play more. There's no like reward system here, except for the experience of communicating with all these other people. Uh, and finding out what they're about. Yeah, like, it, 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 you know, with Disco Elysium, it's one of those rare games that, like Elden Ring, like the uh, Soulsborne series, that it like res it, it not only respects the players, right, and the, and how they navigate everything. It doesn't like have map markers everywhere and stuff like that. But the game also, like oddly, what I've noticed is it like respects itself. Like it knows, at least with the developers and the artistic way of doing things it knows what it's trying to do and it doesn't go it doesn't go above and beyond you know you compare that to like the worst ubisoft titles right and it's just it, it's like this mess of just uh unasked for guidance and it's almost insulting to what the game to the game's narrative to the the writing the writing people behind the scenes and and developing companies and stuff like that it's uh and a lot of games aren't made like that, you know, like I'm, I'm a big gamer and uh, games like Elden Ring, like Dark Souls, like Disco Elysium. I really like I like games that allow themselves to exist simply. <laughs> I mean, the, to the extent that there is an inducement, it's it's the murder mystery, right? It's the, it's that you want to solve 
you want to sort of solve the story. And yet, even there, so much of the information you get is not obviously in service of the story. And I think even it, it's fair to say that as you progress, like a lot of it is just sort of like interesting stuff that you encounter that adds a huge amount of of um, appealing texture to the world, but ultimately isn't like, here's the clue that you then decode and that then provides the answer or at least the next step. Some Some of the information you get is sort of along those lines is a little bit more of a like a traditional detective story clue but a lot of it is just like man what are these guys thinking and why yeah it it has it strikes to me i mean a lot of the influences that this game has it kind of wears on its sleeve but one that i i don't see listed a lot but totally jumps out to me as we talk about it is it seems more like a coen brothers movie than anything it has a sort of fargo vibe the absurd very sort of I mean, dark farce going on at the same time, all these clues and the the sort of uh, very tightly woven plot. It it very much strikes me like that. You can totally imagine their version of this in which the detective, the drunk detective wakes up and doesn't know who he is or where or like what, like anything about himself and stumbles through an inverted detective story where like none of the clues actually really work. And then like that's the yeah, that's that's a, a very good uh, reference point. Peter, something else you said jumps out at me and is is makes me very, very curious. You talked about there is no better way to play um, and the sort of different routes that you can take throughout this game based on your choices, you know, eventually lead you to the point where you have to lean into these ideologies that the game presents to you, the, the moralist, ultra-liberal, fascist, um and uh is it is is it communist is communist, communist the other one yeah i believe yeah, so they, they call themselves the communards communards yeah, it's communism right. still yeah right yeah. and it mechanically it does seem in a ludo narrative sense like we talked about like there is no better way to play but a lot of the reception to this game i have read and sort of seen it's been called pro-communist, which I I don't necessarily buy, but I don't also I, – I do get a sense that it does come off as anti-capitalist uh, or at least anti-ultra-liberal or moralist, which are two of the identities that are presented in this, which because you've got the conflict overarching in, in the world of Elysium that you have this failed – somewhat revolution and the remnants of this uh, sort of communist community that are resisting the uh, moralist and ultra-liberal forces that are trying to come in. But does the game come down on one side, even outside of plot events that happen, but via the mechanics and the world building about ideology? Is there a a right way to play, a best way? Where does the game land on those types of questions? So I don't think that the game comes down on one side or the other. I, I guess what I think it does is, uh, in some ways, it it critiques and tries to deflate all of the ideologies, but it is particularly harsh um, on sort of uh, 
on the ideologies it, it portrays as more extreme, right? And extremism in this game is often seen as, as something a little bit, um, is, is, is often portrayed in a somewhat more negative light. And I think it's, it's telling that the, in many ways, the most appealing character in this game, the most decent character is Kim Kutsuragi, who is the, uh, your partner character and basically is just there to, uh, like as a gameplay function, Kim is there to keep things moving and keep you on track to the extent that that is possible. Um, but also he's there to remind you that there is decency in the world and his decency is, is really important to this game because it, it doesn't like, it doesn't rely on him being an extremely ideological person. Right. He, that's not ultimately why he's good. He's not good because he's like a, a hardcore communist. He's also not good because he's a hardcore, uh, you know, a free marketer type. Right. He is he is somebody who is who is decent to other people. And it is it is essential, small interpersonal decency, as well as the fact that part of that means he he's the, the one character who just consistently helps you, the player character, out. Um, and so. So to me, like the to the extent. To, if I want to say that this game sides with anything, it's against ideological extremism and in favor of small interpersonal decency. And that's not like a the, the game doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a uh, uh, an ideology that's present. That's like small interpersonal decency. That's what you can choose. And yet, like there is like you can often choose to be better or worse. And what the game sort of shows us is that the, is that like goodness comes from the from those small moments and from from Kim like decency. Yeah, like I, I think I might I think I might almost flip this in a way because that makes sense. Like on the surface, I, I think it's there is sort of like a constructive narrative where it seems like they're trying to deconstruct like extremist ideologies. Um and I kind of had that idea for the longest time, but I think the more I thought about it, I I think actually almost what the game does is, uh, and and I think I'd imagine I, I've done a little bit of research with the the writers and stuff like that. Uh, I think they're uh, Estonian, and um, and they are a bunch of I think like um, they are a bunch of essentially very left-wing sort of like what we would call in today's world black-pilled communist kind of but but that's kind of important but i think what they're almost doing in the game that i think is really smart is they're actually ironically showing the extremism of every ideology within the game so it kind of hark at least me being kind of a theory nerd it reminds me a little bit of um slavo zizek talks a little bit about this like uh, about how you know especially in his book violence like how um, the, the concept of extremism is very, very hard to map because it's only in relation. Extremism is different among a certain established order, right? And, and, and our world being kind of liberal democracy, we're all Western liberals. Um, but something that can be easy to, to forget ironically is how, um, you know, even historically, right. Liberal democracy was very radical at one point. Um, and then even in today's context, there has to be radical steps taken to uh, ensure liberal democracy, right? And that can exist in a number of ways, right? We might say like, you know, in the past, like uh, imperialism or uh, war or um, 
stuff of that nature, austerity, perhaps. Um, I kind of, I, I think I, I definitely was landing there as well. I was like, this game is absolutely destroying every political ideology in very smart ways. And, and it does, but like it almost, it, I think it almost paints ideology in general as something that is so extreme uh, because it's so almost like absent from us like a, a very communal nature of human beings because that's kind of what like i don't know if you guys got this that's kind of what the game sort of does to me it's like you interact with people on such a human level politics is always there but it's always like some weird mask for example the fascist guy the crypt gary the crypto fascist um he's like this kind of insecure sort of kind of i don't know if that makes sense he's like this insecure kind of bothered guy like i know if you like press him on his fascism <laughs> he like kind of like oh well you know and then um you know harry is obviously absolutely distraught from his ex-wife and uh, a lot of the hardships he's gone through and it's like the game like pierces through that those ideological veils and it gets at a very human level like everyone in that game is like a very real person and I almost feel like the the sort of narrative point to me was was showcasing the extremity of ideology as a whole, maybe. But I think it does it it does present that extremity as as you said, like a mask for underlying very human feelings. And I was struck i I never did I never got any of the four political vision quests that were added in the director's cut because I guess I never committed enough to a particular ideology to trigger one but they're on youtube and i was watching them very suspicious and the the fascism one i think is the best one from that human perspective because it is all about it's not defending fascism it it doesn't you know nothing in it makes fascism look better but it's ultimately just like very empathetic to the kind of people who end up in fascist ideologies. So there's the the Gary the crypto fascist, but there's just this sense of like underlying sadness and lack of of meaning that drags into this. And I love there's the line in there. Um I think it's Measurehead says it to you. Um where it's talking about like fascism because you're trying to figure out if there's a way to travel back in time is the the crux of the quest and someone has told you that fascism these fascist people have figured out time travel. And Harry just dives headfirst into that possibility. And ultimately what you get out of Measurehead is he says that fascism is time travel because the line he uses is he who clings to the past controls the future. And and that's this like kind of getting at this deep lack at the center of like the fascist psychology of just like I want to control the future, but all I have is this imagined reactionary past and it comes away like deeply sad and that's the that's the general sense i get like even the communists um their their revolution failed uh, and we don't have the full story of like how it failed but it seems to be just kind of overwhelming force but when you find the the deserter at the end at the sea at the sea fortress you find the murderer who it turns out is just kind of a guy who got left over from that revolution and just hung out by himself on this island after being, I don't know if he, did he run away or he was left for dead? I don't remember for sure, but it's just this like deep sense of sadness that the revolution was an attempt to take these, these extremist ideologies that we held onto and we build our belief around and operationalize them in the world to make the world conform to our ideology. And it failed. And it just destroyed this guy to the extent that he spent 
decades hanging out by himself by a campfire on a like cold and windy island watching people have lives in the city yeah i i definitely think at the forefront and how they approach the sort of ideological commentary especially the fascism and communism is it's just like an utter destruction of political futures that's something that if you read um, a lot of contemporary critical theory it's it's almost trying to trying to uh, examine that sort of uh, like uh, extremely depressed nature and how we approach the future, right? Because a lot there's a lot of critical theories is relatively left wing and um, a lot of theory that's that's made in the 21st century or written or even stuff post uh, the sort of neoliberal revolutions we saw in the 80s. It's it's such a, a grappling of of like what to do with the future, right? So one of the most popular theorists right now, I'd argue, um, is sort of Mark Fisher, and that's like his entire thing is like um, grappling with art and media and how do we envision an actual future. Disco Elysium does that, I think, with like with the communist and the fascist, and in some respects, sort of like the the moralist or the ultra liberals. It's just almost uh, not to the same extent. I would I would say, and I think that's almost reflective of the developers. I would imagine because um, I believe the developers come the, actually from like a, a pretty left wing progressive extent, but it's like very smart because they acknowledge that like every sort of left wing endeavor has monumentally failed and. And in many respects, I would completely agree with that in reality, but the game also reflects that. So it's it, it's it's like this extreme dark depression, but like it tries to get to the kernel of humanity underneath. This is a game that does a better job than almost any other piece of fiction I can think of, of capturing the contingency of governments and social order. And it, it is a game that, unlike basically every other story and virtually all political discourse, does not treat politics and government as something that exists inherently, right? Or at least particular forms of it. What it does is it says that the form comes out of what people choose and what they do and the coalitions and associations that they uh, sort of make for themselves. And it all ends up being, it sort of ends up working in this messy muddle, um, but it's not something that someone just sort of, it's not designed really all that much, right? It's just sort of comes out of, of, of a lot of um, atomized interactions. Uh, and it's also, it's, it's not stable, right? It's not this thing that just sort of, always i mean in some ways it's sort of a game that, that that does say that politics is always sort of around us and and um and a uh, a lens through which we are you know through which all of our interactions are taking place at the same time it's also it's sort of there's this perception in so much western political commentary um that that the government that like governments are sort of always here and always and like always going to organize a lot of our lives and this game sort of says, well, they, they kind of do, but only just because people perpetuate them all the time, right? And they perpetuate these different forms of them. And it's just like, I mean, the, the, 
The particular um, way that I think this expresses itself most is just sort of w- with the policing uh, situation, right, where you have these police who have been given limited powers in another district come down to this district, but there's conflict because the, lo- the local union expects to basically do their own policing to, to some extent. And it's like, well, do police have authority here? I mean, someone says they do, but th- that doesn't actually mean that they have any authority. Uh, and that doesn't mean right. Like it's it's a system that is contingent upon other people accepting it, and the game often sort of extrapolates from there and says all of these systems, every single system of social order and organization, they're all contingent on enough people accepting and choosing to sort of to work within them, uh, and all of these. And that's what ideology is, but that's also just like institutional social organization from unions to corporations to literally the the bar at the that you wake up in the bar hotel um is is itself a, a kind of political social institution within this game and within this town right it serves as a hub of information a gathering point um all, all of these things right it plays a function but it's just sort of it's self-organized um and this is a game about how people self-organize often in conflict with each other Arguably the happiest people that we meet in this game, the the best, the ones who just seem to be the most content or excited about their current state or the world, are the the dice maker who just is like this completely pleasant and serene and just seems to love what she's doing. And then are our hardcore guys starting their disco. And and so out of all of the people, the happiest are the ones who are just kind of start who just like starting or running their own businesses. And and the only other entrepreneur that I think we meet is the uh, is the bookstore owner, the pawn shop owner. Oh, the pawn shop owner. Yeah. But it does seem that these people who just kind of are focusing on their own thing and creating this. And there's that other that that other little sort of storefront. Um, where you get uh, you can get chemicals over by the um, the right, but that's just a clerk. That's like this. That's the bored teenager. That's not. She's not the the person who started that store. Uh, but it does seem like it just these these people who just like are starting like the entrepreneurs are our happiest people. I, I'm curious about the the hardcore people specifically because I wonder if they can consi- because I don't know if they would consider themselves entrepreneurs though so much as like community leaders like they they want to create a, a gathering place where people can listen to music and dance but i don't know if they would necessarily want to charge for that type of thing or if they just want to you know blare hardcore to the mega music and invite people to dance the whole time um just they, just the one exception i can see to that yeah they i i think it's like almost like they're they the people that are happiest right in those sort of entrepreneur uh type positions um is it's almost like they have they have uh imagination i feel like this game is sort of just there is a world where revolutions have been crushed political futures have been decimated to the point where imagination just doesn't really work anymore right like hope is just it's not really a tangible thing, right? And it can't be, except if you do the things that you sort of enjoy, like make dice, and you just think simply and think smallly. Um, uh, and then you do really weird stuff, like the hardcore people who just want to fuck around and make music and or listen to music and just do dumb stuff. Like, it's kind of funny. It's kind of beautiful, but yeah. 
it, like you said, imagination. I mean, some of the people that that have hope that are persistent and and while they may not you know fully appreciate what's going on, there there is some hope and happiness in the the cryptozoologist and his wife who pursue something that one of them, if not both of them, in some part of their mind acknowledges is probably not real in searching for the insulindian phasmid, um, which is the becomes this kind of magical realist um almost lovecraftian entity that you encounter at the end of the game that you find out has literally been influencing the sniper over on the sea fort but this imagination that they have this it, it animates them and and gives purpose to their life outside of politics and and that's it's like this weird moment of of joy and sort of zaniness that we get in the midst of all of this. Like, I don't think either of them discuss any politics with you at all. If I, if I recall, Gary, the crypto fascist, is with the cryptozoologist, but they're not really discussing that much. Um, and there is a bit of it, it seems bleak at times and, and you end up sort of thinking that, you know, maybe it doesn't exist at all, but then it shows up right at the end. But you get this weird, conflicted it, – it's a sense of hope because none of the like conflict amongst these people matters in the grand scale of the natural world that has existed long before any of these people. But it is also bleak in that aspect. So it is kind of nihilistic in a way, but depending on how you – you take it, it, I mean, I, I was just really curious because the Insulindian phasmid made me feel a lot of things, but I didn't come down with a, a clear answer from the end. And like that and the, the presence of the pale and the sort of magical realist elements going on in the world were much more interesting to me than any of the political conversations as interesting as they were. But we only get like this sliver of them. So I, I was really curious what other people thought about those aspects of the game. I guess the most interesting thing to me was how in some ways uninterested the game was in them. Um, just because this is a fictional universe in which like that sort of thing exists, right? Like, And so in the way that we don't question the existence of rhinoceroses because they just seem normal to us, even though like let's like if rhinoceroses did not exist. And suddenly you saw one running across the plane. You'd be like, what in the hell is that crazy fantasy creature? Why is Guillermo del Toro directing my life? And yet, like, we're just like, it's a rhino. I mean, it's kind of neat. I'll go to a zoo and see a rhino, but I'm not that excited by one. And I don't really feel the need to, like, learn the deep history of how they got here because they're just rhinoceroses. And I've, the game treats its magical realist elements, I think, in that way. Isn't that kind of I, I've I've thought it kind of exactly like that with Disco Elysium a little bit, especially with the Phasmid. Uh, isn't that kind of similar to our own world? I think like sometimes I think we can be a little bit too dogmatic in how we look at really weird things, like things we might think that are like oddly like I don't know paranormal, or we don't have an it, it, like I, I feel like the world's weird, right? The world's really really weird. Like I think um, I, I really disagree. I think Frederick Nietzsche kind of said that. Um, the world is bland and every weird thing that happens, there's an explanation that's really boring. And only whenever you understand the boring nature of the world is whenever the world can ironically be interesting. And I kind of take the reversal 
like I kind of take the reversal of that. I, I actually ironically think the world is really, really like weird. Um, and I still think there's still stuff, right? This is kind of, I guess, why I'm into philosophy in general, because it's like sort of an endeavor into the weird stuff that might be right. But I mean, that can exist within like quantum mechanics. Like when you really like read about like like physicists, they're like, I mean, constantly th there's a debate about what really exists within a certain type, like within string theory or they're like, there's these theories that are like scientifically concrete, but they're like also kind of not and they'll conflict with each other. And they're just like, man, I don't know what's going on here. Like, and I, I you know, I can't help but think that might actually be an actual like metaphysical sort of uh reinterpretation of our own world in some respects like the pale or something like that you know just on the happiness question my understanding is that the game makers um started this after periods of failure and depression involving uh, sort of long periods of uh, uh of of uh, abusive relationship with alcohol and that this game came to some extent out of uh, out of dark periods in their own lives. Um, and so I would imagine that if they are imbuing this game with some of their own values, that like part of what they sort of realized out of this, it seems to suggest is that the thing you do to pull yourself out of a dark place uh, is to make something that is wonderful and weird and share it with the world and hope that other people respond. And it, as it turned out, they did. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E like a philosopher, Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us if you like the show. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is a project of Libertarianism.org and is produced by me, Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at Libertarianism.org. <laughs>